Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. As you stand there, would you please pray with me? Father, we pray that as we open up your scriptures now, that our hearts would be illuminated by your Holy Spirit, that we would see Jesus Christ, and that as we see him, would we be transformed to become like him. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I said it earlier and you didn't do very good. You must have been shivering or something. But it's good to see all of you. Um, if I've not met you, my name is Patrick Schlavs, and I'm one of the pastors here at the cathedral. Um, I was, thankfully, on the schedule to preach this morning. Uh, and it's good, good that I was because our uh, beloved senior pastor, Pete Dickinson, the dean of this cathedral, texted me last night at 11.45 and said that he just tested positive for COVID. And so um, I'm glad he wasn't saying, I need you to preach my sermon. So be, be in prayer for him. His, kind of, his family's been going through it um, over the last week. So just pray for a quick healing. He, he so far doesn't have any symptoms and is feeling good, but he should be back with us next week. But I'm glad to be here with you sharing the word. Uh, it has been said that the role of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I will make no promises to any of you on which camp you're going to be after this morning. But in today's gospel lesson, we see Jesus doing that very thing. The passage we just read is Jesus' first recorded sermon in Luke's gospel. And one commentator, I really love this, one commentator said that this is the Nazareth Manifesto. And the reason that it's so important, the reason that this story features in each of the gospels is because it, it, it's, a, it's a paradigm of sorts. It gives you a glimpse into what the essence of Jesus' ministry and mission is and how we can expect people to respond to him throughout the gospel. And Luke actually front loads this passage. But the other uh, Matthew, the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, have him a bit later, this encounter a little bit later, when he goes home to preach in his home synagogue. But here, Luke puts it to the first and says, this is what you can expect throughout the remainder of this gospel. And the question for us this morning that I want to grapple with in this text is, who is Jesus good news for? Who is Jesus good news for? And so I invite you to grab a Bible. There should be one in your pew if you didn't bring one with you. And turn over to Luke chapter 4. You can find it on page 859. We're going to spend all of our time there this morning. So we, of course, have just finished the season of Advent and Christmas. And this Advent and Christmas, we have spent our time listening to Luke's account of the gospel. And in the first couple chapters, we hear of the messages of expectation of both John the Baptist and his ministry of preparation, and then later of Jesus. We see the arrival of Jesus and John the Baptist. And in the early weeks of this season, Epiphany, we look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The chapter before, we see John the Baptist beginning his ministry of preaching and his call to repentance and baptism out in the wilderness. And then Luke does an interesting thing that we'll look at more in depth in just a second, but Luke does a genealogy. Matthew, of course, does this as well, but, but Luke's is unique in that it goes all the way back to Adam. He traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, the son of God. And in the passage just before what we just heard read, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. 
test which he passed with flying colors. And so we get to our text today. Chapter four, or verse 14, Luke tells us that Jesus returned from this wilderness experience in the power of the Spirit, and he comes home to Galilee. And he begins his ministry with a preaching tour of sorts. And the report is getting around. This guy's great. He's a great preacher. Jesus Christ International Ministries is going very well at the onset. People are talking. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's performing miracles. He's healing. Verse 16 says that he then comes to Nazareth. He comes to the place where he had grown up, had been brought up. And as was his custom, Luke tells us, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stands up to read. Several reformers uh, comment on this text. And they say that if the Son of God went to church every week, what on earth is your excuse? That's not my point necessarily, but I'm just saying that's John Calvin's point. He's frowning whenever you sleep in. This uh, encounter here is actually the first record, the earliest record we have of what synagogue worship might have looked like. We do have records from three or four centuries later, and it all resonates. It sounds pretty familiar to what we encounter here. But kind of sketching between what we know from several centuries later and what we see here, the synagogue worship probably looks something like this. They probably came together, and there were some prayers. There were probably some singing of the Psalms. And then we know that the readers stood up to read and then sat down to comment on that. It was less formal even than this probably. It was more of a communal kind of lay-led thing. There was an attendant that, you know, uh, oversaw the scrolls and what the readings were going to be, what the service may look like. But there was no formal preacher. And in fact, any respected member of the community could come in and expound the text. We see that later in Acts whenever Paul goes from synagogue to synagogue. As we hear Jesus is, this moment is pregnant with expectation. Word has been getting around that he is a great preacher. This hometown kid returning to show everybody what he's become. In verse 17, we hear that Jesus is given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Marilyn Robinson, the novelist and essayist, says that Isaiah is for the New Testament, the great prophet of the world transformed. And that's what we hear in the words that Jesus reads. He says this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus says he has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In verse 20 it says that he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. And it says that every eye was fixed upon him. This would be unusual. As I said, it was pretty informal. People were probably talking and kind of looking around. And yet here, their eyes are fixed upon Jesus. And he says a very short sermon. Much shorter than today, I'm sorry to say. Today, this scripture, Jesus says, has been fulfilled in your hearing. And if you were to read the gospel in one sitting, as uh, Rob Sturdy talked about last week, you would understand that this is an incredible moment. Though it's early in the book, this is a huge moment. All of the prophetic words, all the words from the angels to Mary, all of the, the words of Simeon and Anna in the temple, all of it has been pointing towards this moment. Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah 61, and he throws in a line, 
from Isaiah 58 for good measure. And what he says is that Jesus, in him, God's promises of good news for healing and liberation, all these things that you thought were ahead of you, maybe centuries ahead, that did not feel like they were near as you sat under the the thumb of Rome, that those promises are here now. Today, they have been fulfilled. Christopher Wright, an Old Testament scholar, says that in Jesus' words here, we hear combined the echo of Exodus and Jubilee. Exodus, of course, is when the slaves are freed by God's power. Jubilee is from Leviticus 25, whenever all debts were canceled. And those of you with massive student loan debts would say amen to that, right? A new Jubilee. That's what's implied in Jesus' words, that this moment long foretold is here. God's new age begins now. And more than that, Jesus is saying that, not that this is just happening, that it's just kind of erupting around us. He is saying that he is the one who's bringing about this new age. The emphasis in the text again and again and again is on the first person, on the singular. Jesus says, the spirit is upon me, the anointing is upon me. I'm the one who proclaims good news and liberty and healing and favor of God. It is worth noting that in the Isaiah text, the last line is not to proclaim the year of God's favor, that jubilee year. The last line is actually the day of vengeance of our God. So Isaiah even finishes with the word of judgment, but Jesus here does not. He proclaims a year of good news, of God's favor, of God's kindness towards his people. And so what Luke is saying with the genealogy and with the temptation in the wilderness is that Jesus is this new Adam and this new Abraham, the son of Abraham. He's the one who has passed the temptation, passed the test in the garden and in the wilderness. He is the one who is restoring the failures of Adam and Abraham and Israel. He's the one who is reestablishing humanity's true vocation to be lights to the nations, to spread God's rule and God's reign everywhere they go. Jesus is the new Adam and the new Israel. And so, friends, this is good news to Nazareth. Jesus' sermon is fire. It's a mic drop moment. And it should bring great comfort to the people here. It should resonate. There should be rejoicing and celebration saying, yes, amen. The messianic time has arrived. God's kingdom is here. But that's not how they respond. The initial feedback, of course, is good. It says that they did all, all of them spoke well of him, just like the surrounding countryside. They spoke well of him and they marveled at his gracious words. But then there's kind of a pivot in the text. It's all good. Jesus' ministries are, are, are just flourishing. It's going amazing. And then they say, is this not Joseph's son? We knew this kid. We saw him running around here making messes in Joseph's shop. How can this be? How can he be the one that is ushering in this new age of God's kingdom? And Jesus clearly understands their hearts because he, he begins to speak it out. And he says, you will quote me on this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you've done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. This proverb is well attested in the ancient world. Different cultures had some version of this. And the essence um, kind of can get lost on our modern ears. 
But Jill Green, a New Testament commentator, says that in essence, this proverb and Jesus' comments mean what you've done for others, do not withhold from your relatives. They're saying in essence that, Jesus, you've gone around and you've been preaching and that's great, but you've been doing these miracles and healing people, doing signs and wonders. You're not going to leave your hometown out of that, right? Your sermon was good. Your sermon was fine. But we'd like to see some of those healings, miracles, maybe feeding 5,000. We want that. Jesus responds to his declaration of their, of their thoughts. And he says, truly, in, in verse 24, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he really goes for it. He kind of shifts from comfort to affliction in his sermon here. And he, and he mentions two Old Testament prophets. One, Elijah from, verse, uh, from 1 Kings 17. Who, if you forgot the story, Jesus, uh, Elijah, Elijah goes and is sent by God to Sidon, this, this, this land that was particularly um, an, a, an offensive uh, neighbor outside the, the, the people of Israel. And it's in the middle of a famine. And this widow has her last meal prepared. She's going to eat it with her and her son, and then it says that she's going to die. And Elijah says, give me some of that bread. And she, a bit reluctantly, does feed him. And it says that for the remainder of the time of this famine, she, her oil and her, her flour never run out. God meets her in that need because she trusted in God's servant. And then he mentions Elisha from 2 Kings 5. And in case you forgot, Naaman is this Syrian leader, military leader, an enemy of Israel who is stricken with leprosy. He is a servant who says, you should go to Israel and go see Elisha, this great prophet. So he does. Elisha tells him to bathe seven times in this river Jordan and you'll be healed. And he, again, reluctantly does it. And he's completely healed. And both of these encounters, these people listen to the servants of God, trust in God, and ultimately put their hope in the God of Israel. They're examples of Israel doing what it was meant to do, spreading God's light God's rule and God's reign beyond their borders. And Jesus says of these two encounters that there were many widows in Israel. There were many lepers in Israel, but these servants, these prophets didn't go to them. He went outside to the Gentiles, outsiders, enemies. Jesus' point here is that the good news His good news that he's proclaiming was not just for Israel. It was for the whole world. And oh man, this passage is a roller coaster of emotion. They go from praising him and welcoming him and speaking of his gracious words. When they hear this, they are furious. They're enraged. And it says that they rise up, drive him out of the synagogue. They bring him to the edge of the hill. Some of you may have been to Nazareth and seen it as kind of a hill city. Bring him to the edge of this, this hill and they want to throw him down. And we're not exactly sure how, the text doesn't say, but somehow, some way, Jesus just passed through their midst. His time had not yet come, and he went away. And so as I said earlier, our, tech, our question for this morning that this text demands is, how did the people who should have been most comforted by Jesus' words, who should have been rejoicing and celebrating and saying that the king is here, how did they find, instead of comfort, affliction? And respond with wrath and rejection. The answer for them and for us this morning is that Jesus' message of good news that he proclaims, the gospel, 
that he tells them is good news, not to the rich, but to the poor. He proclaims his good news, his message of the gospel to the poor. It's the same word that he'll use later in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this word for poor is not just the spiritually poor. It's not just the economically poor, though those are both in view. It's more holistic than that. It's those who are excluded, those who are dishonored, those who are desperate. The foreigner, the outcast, the servant, the slave, the ones who have nowhere else to go, who are fully dependent on divine care because no one else will care for them. Fully dependent on the Lord. Again, Joel Green says the poor here are not the subjective, the spiritual, the personal, or the economic, but the holistically poor. Those who for socio-religious reasons are relegated to positions outside the boundaries of the people of God. It's the outsiders. Those without hope, those without expectation of good. And this message of this new age that Jesus brings is Certainly good news if you are poor, if you are captive, if you are blind, if you are oppressed. It's not good news if you have need of nothing, if you're wealthy, if you're free, if you have your health, if you have power and agency, if you're a good, faithful, church-going or synagogue-going person like the people of Nazareth. The gospel, friends, is good news to those who know that they desperately Need it. And my question for us this morning is I wonder, does this gospel that we have heard proclaimed from Jesus in this text, that we have sung about, his great mercy that is more, that we have prayed, that we will ultimately experience in being welcomed to God's table, does this good news bring comfort to you? Does it sound like good news? Does it stir something in your heart, in your affections? Or, if you're honest, does it feel a little bit tired, a bit boring? Do you feel a bit entitled to this or deserving of this? Has our wealth, has our Comfort has our agency, has our freedom robbed us of the knowledge of our need? And if that is true for you, as it can be for all of us, I want to remind you this morning that despite all the appearances of everyone in this room, despite our wealth, despite our independence, despite for most of us our health and our agency, none of these things will save us. And each of them, in fact, is completely undeserved and unearned. We can take no credit for much of these things. They are gifts that can shelter us from our need. But be reminded that the glorious holy God is the one who humbled himself and folded himself into humanity to live and to die and to be raised for the poor, for the captive, for the blind, for those who are oppressed by the great enemies of sin and death. And instead, this work has made us rich in him. 
healthy in him, powerful in him, uplifted in him. This is a good news of great comfort. In most Anglican liturgies, there's something called the comfortable words. It's just four passages of scripture that are read after the confession of sin. And one of those quotes that said weekly in our eight o'clock service and occasionally in here is from Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. And he says that Christ Jesus, he says this saying is true and worthy of all to be received, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And we don't say this in the comfortable words, but Paul adds, of whom I am the foremost of all. Paul fought again and again and again, this great apostle to remember his poverty, to remember his sickness, to remember his oppression, to remember what Jesus had done on his behalf. And so in this new year, this still new year, it's still January, right? So we can still call it a new year. I want to challenge you to reflect on this gospel message and to listen to it with fresh ears, with fresh heart, a heart leaning in. And even ask the Lord that he would remind you of your first love, that you would be stirred to wonder and thanksgiving at the gospel that we see and know and experience in Jesus. That we are loved, that we are freed, that we are healed, and that we are delivered. Each and every one of us. Amen? Amen.